Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning, we are continuing our study through the book of Isaiah. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. The last Lord's Day, we looked at chapters 1 through 5, which uh, I realize I used quite a bit of extra time. So hopefully this morning we'll be done a little earlier, closer to what we want to be done at in terms of time. But uh, what we saw last week in chapters 1 to 5 is essentially Isaiah's um, preface to the whole book. Chapters 1 to 5 function like a short introduction from him as the author, and he is telling us why he's writing the book. He's helping us understand the things he wants us to know before he even gets into the bulk of the material in chapters 6 through chapters 66. Isaiah's call to ministry and the prophetic details that follow then are like chapter 1 of this book, and that's what we're going to begin to look at this morning. But what the situation is on the ground as he's writing and as he's preaching, uh, and why his ministry was even necessary, that is not clear to us unless we understand what he says in chapters 1 through 5. And what we saw, Isaiah accuse the southern kingdom of Judah of, and corroborate throughout that five-chapter preface was that Judah was not what God, as his people, had intended them to be. The whole book of Isaiah, we said, is, is kind of like God's letter to his beloved son, telling him, uh, his wayward son, to show him all the ways that he'd rejected him, all the ways that he had uh, squandered the spiritual privilege that, that he had been given and had failed to live up to his calling. And so, um, like a mirror, the, the book of Isaiah is, is holding forth um, God's reminder to them to help them see who they belong to and what they've fallen away from. And even though they'd strayed completely off the reservation spiritually and practically, this book is filled with reminders and, and, po- and pointers back to help them return to the Lord in covenant faithfulness. Now, by way of review, we saw that uh, in chapter 1 that Judah was a comprehensive failure across the board. God chose them to be a billboard to the nations. We just read that in in Exodus chapter 19. They were to be this beachhead through whom the true knowledge of God was to be disseminated throughout the whole world to the nations. But they were a comprehensive failure. We said they were not what they needed to be nationally. We, We saw some examples of that. They were not what God wanted them to be religiously, and they were not what God wanted them to be uh, socially. So like a prosecutor in chapter 1, Isaiah is making his case, the Lord's case, against the people. And he calls heaven to earth as witness in verse 2, and then he reads the charges, which is they have revolted against him, and then he gives a lot of explanation of what that looks like. And at the end of chapter 1, a sentence of judgment is actually pronounced against them all in that. And uh, in verse 24 of chapter 1, he says, he says to them, he says, listen, uh, therefore the Lord God of armies, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel declares, I will be avenged of my adversaries and I will avenge myself on my foes. Stunningly, God's infinite power is, is, is going to be turned toward them as his enemies with a righteous judgment. But we said even in the midst of all of that condemnation and confrontation, there are echoes of mercy. 
And they're all over this first chapter in verses 18 and 19. He says, though your sins are as scarlet, listen, they will be as white as snow. They are red like crimson. They will be made like wool. He says, if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. And later on in verse 26, he says, then I will restore your judges at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. In other words, I will set things right as they should have been at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. He says, Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. Isaiah, speaking for God, says you're guilty, but here's what can happen. If you repent and return, I can offer you complete and total forgiveness. But that forgiveness is, of conditioned upon a repentant heart, a broken spirit. He says, repent and eat the good things of the land. God will bring justice and righteousness, verse 27, but he will do that to whom? His repentant ones. So God is a righteous God, but God, and God is a jealous God, but he is also a God who is compassionate. He is a God who is abounding in loving kindness to those who turn back to him with a humble heart. And then in chapters 2 to 4, we saw God's purposes consummated, his purposes in judgment and his purposes in salvation. Isaiah, is, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, he is trying to produce within the people an appetite for obedience by showing them how Uh, absolutely certain God's justice against their sin will be. And when he rises up, chapter 2, the end of chapter 2 makes clear, when he rises up, God does, there will be nothing to rescue them. Nothing that they have put their trust in will be there to save them. And he says, and he explains that as he does that in chapter 3, he's going to explain, as he judges them, the foundations of society are going to give way. It is a cataclysmic judgment, and that's what you see him describing throughout chapter 3 into the beginning part of chapter 4. But we said all of God's impulses are not judgment and chastening. That judgment and chastening are meant to purify. They're meant to sanctify them again and to accomplish his saving purposes. And we see that bookended in chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, and again in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. And the picture that we get in those sections is really one of a new Eden, a new heaven and a new earth. Things restored to to their rightful place as they ought to be. And we see the Prince of Peace reigning in righteousness, filling the whole earth. All of that is laid out in these these kind of vision summary statements of what the future holds. He's going to get into much more detail in this in the back half of the book in chapters 40 to 66, but he gives a little preview here in this this preface. We saw then, it ended in chapter 5, where we saw God's grace consumed. In other words, it was exhausted. Isaiah ends this prefatory five chapters by helping them understand that they are like a vineyard. He uses a parable. They are like a vineyard, and God is the owner of the vineyard and the vine dresser. And and the picture we see in chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, is that God has done a complete work, but all he's gotten in response is a complete loss. And and, and then verse 4 gives us sort of the... um, what's left. He, he asks a rhetorical question, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? 
He says, I've done all I can do, and you have rejected me. You have turned your back on me. So the only thing left to do is, is to bring a righteous judgment, which he lays out in verses 8 to uh, 23. And then we said, uh, at the end, he, he explains how that justice is going to carry, be carried out. He's going to bring a foreign nation to consume them, to take them out of the land of Israel uh, and Judah, excuse me, and then they are going to be exiled. Judah sowed to the flesh, and that faithless generation reaped judgment and shame and corruption. They were not what God meant for them to be, and there wasn't even a desire to turn back. They had no interest in obeying the Lord. And so chapter 5, we said, ends with the lights going out. In verse 30, He says, if one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light, such that it is, he says, is darkened by its clouds. There are no flickers of light at the end of chapter 5. God's grace is exhausted. And they, you know, in chapters 1 to 4, there were these little pockets of of, um, hope, these pockets of light. But it ends, chapter 5 ends really with God closing up shop, shutting off the lights and walking away. At least that's how it looks from from our perspective as we read this. But we said last Sunday as we ended that as Isaiah begins this opening chapter of the book, which is our chapter 6, there lies a promise of a new beginning. And that's what we want to consider this morning, as he's about to introduce this son of David, this King, this Messiah, God with us. And so I just want to read chapter 6 and uh, set it before us, and uh, then we'll break it down into three uh, bite-sized portions once again. He says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, until houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet, There will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, chapters 6 to 12 form a complete unit in this book. 
Uh, in particular, they act, chapter 6 acts as a bridge between chapters 1 to 5 and chapters 7 to 12. And um, chapter 6 has one foot planted firmly in the terrifying reality of God's grace exhausted, which we saw in chapter 5. And then it also has the other foot firmly planted in the promise of Messiah and his kingdom ushering in salvation in chapter 7 to 12. And in between that, in between chapters 1 to 5 and 7 to 12, we see God's confrontation, God's cleansing, and God's commission of Isaiah the prophet which tells us again and again, death does not have the final word. Death does not have the final word. When we come across these introductory details, it is easy as you read this to overlook their significance and their meaning. Right, okay? This is Isaiah's call and commission. We know this passage well. It's, it's, if you're familiar with the Bible, it's, it's, you've heard it, you know it. Here's what we need to understand. Isaiah, like all the prophets who share details of their call to ministry, uh, Jeremiah does this, Ezekiel does this, and others, they are not recording those details simply for their own sake. Okay, Personal facts are communicated because they illustrate some vital theme that God wants us to know and understand. And the theme of chapter 6 is this, death does not have the last word. That is the theme of this chapter. There is always hope for God to act even when it seems like the lights have gone out. So we can break the text down into three parts. And I just want to give you the outline ahead of time. I know some of you like to take notes and, and kind of get in front of where we're going. Chapters, uh, our verses 1 to 5, we see Isaiah's confrontation with the holiness of God. In verses 6 and 7, we're going to see his cleansing and in verses 9 to 13, excuse me, 8 to 13, we'll see his commission. So, confrontation, cleansing, commission. That's the outline. We want to break down and look at verses 1 to 5 first, because we see in, in those verses Isaiah's confrontation with the holiness of God. And you look at the beginning of verse 1, he says, In the year of King Uzziah's death. And we'll just stop right there for a second. This is happening in a particular context. And if you've um, been uh, faithful to follow my encouragement to read 1 Kings 15 to 21, uh, or, uh, excuse me, uh, in 2 uh, Chronicles 26, you'll know that King Uzziah, who's also called Azariah, and he had kind of had a nickname, I guess, reigned for 52 years, and he presided over a period in, in Judah's history, the divided kingdom of peace, relative peace and prosperity. It was a good time to be in Judah. But at the end of his life, the Assyrian uh, king, Tiglath-Pileser III, has come to power, and now he has ambitions to conquer. He has ambitions to expand his empire. And that begins to stir the pot of all the nations around, in and around Israel and Judah. It affects Damascus up in the north. It affects Egypt in the south. And, and what makes Uzziah's death here significant in terms of Judah's situation is that he ended his reign as king, tripping and falling over the finish line. <laughs> You think of his if his life of his, the race of his life like a you know like a marathon he he ran well until the end and then he started tripping and falling 
And as Kings and Chronicles tell us, he arrogantly violated God's command and he entered the temple himself to burn incense before the Lord, which was not his responsibility nor his prerogative. He was not a priest. And God, as a result of that disobedience, struck him with leprosy and forced him to spend the remainder of his years essentially estranged and alienated from the people. And his son, Jotham, ruled in his, in his place. And so this king, Uzziah, this symbol of the nation, which is what the king was, was a man under God's judgment as his life draws to a close. And he's overseeing a people who, as we saw in chapter 1, are increasingly revolting against God's word. And they are staring down now the prospects of a foreign nation, an unstoppable imperialistic foe in Assyria, bearing down on them. And then this king who has been on the throne for nearly or over a half a century, he dies. And the question is raised fast on the heels of the lights going out in chapter 5, has the Lord come to the end of his proverbial rope with his people? That's the question. Because it looks bleak. Right? It looks bleak externally, it looks bleak internally, nationally, spiritually, socially. These are dark days. And it's here, it's interesting, it is here that Isaiah timestamps his call to ministry. It is with a death in the darkness that God confronts Isaiah with a vision of himself. And that's what you see in the latter part of verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. He says, in this year, when Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, again, John chapter 1 and verse 18 in the New Testament, we learn that you can't see God, right? God is a spirit, and, uh, and in his essence, we, he cannot be seen. But occasionally, God will accommodate man's creatureliness and make himself visible to us. And we see examples of that in the Old Testament. They're called, it's a fancy theological word, theophanies. Basically, we see God. So uh, this could be one of those situations, but it also could be um, a visionary experience where God has given him a vision of himself. So it's not something that Isaiah saw with his physical eyes, but it was something that he made known to him supernaturally. It is, uh, and that is, that is probably the direction I would lean, that second one. It's also possible um, that, uh, and that's kind of reinforced, I think, by John chapter 12, because Isaiah uh, is quoted there. These, these words, his commission are quoted there, and it says, Isaiah says he saw the sun. He saw the sun, because in John uh, chapter 12 and verse 41, he quotes Isaiah 6, and then he adds, Isaiah said this, because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. So, so when he speaks of the Lord here, the New Testament fills in the gap to help us understand that Isaiah is having a vision of God the Son. So most likely, he's describing this vision. And in this vision, he sees the Son on a throne. And it says he is lofty and exalted. Again, that term, those two terms, lofty and exalted, are connected with the Lord's servant later on in chapter 52 and verse 13. Again, just reinforcing that what he's seeing in this visionary experience is a, uh, a vision of the Lord in all of his glory. 
And in the year that this earthly king dies, Isaiah receives a vision of the real king, the king of kings, who stands behind and over every earthly king. And he tells us the train of his robe is filling the temple. What does that mean? Well, the temple was the earthly location where God's unique and majestic presence touched the earth, right? That's where God met with his people, where, where the transcendent God in all of his glory manifests himself in a specific location in a particular way. It was to be, the temple was to be the center of the people's lives. And so essentially God is, what he's saying is in this situation that the God is meeting his people where they ought to have the center of their lives. And that's where this vision of God is taking place. But he doesn't just see the Lord and his glory filling the temple. He also sees seraphim standing in the Lord's presence. Verse 2, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Now, seraphs, seraphim is plural. Seraphs literally are burning ones. That's what the word means. They are burning ones. They're heavenly beings described only here in the scriptures with human-like bodies, but they have six wings, six wings. And he says two of those wings cover their faces, presumably not to look directly at the glory of the Lord. Uh, With two, they cover their feet possibly signifying that they were not choosing their own path because the feet in the Old Testament and the New Testament are associated with the direction of one's life. And with two, they flew because, as you'll see at the beginning of verse two, they stood above him or kind of alongside him. In other words, they are servants waiting upon the Lord for direction where to go. That's the picture here that we see. And, uh, and they are on fire. They're burning ones. Fire is primarily the visible symbol of God's holiness. Now, if you remember, um, where when Moses encountered God, a theophany, in Exodus chapter 3, what was the bush doing? It was burning. In, uh, we just read in Exodus 19, when God appeared before the people, verse 18 tells us what? There was fire and thunder and lightning. And again, so... When God's, holy, when God's holiness is present, it is connected to this picture of fire. And so you have these burning ones with fiery wings covering their faces and their feet and their move flying around. And so the scene is basically one of giant flames surrounding the Holy One. And as these flaming servants wait upon the Lord, it's interesting what they're doing. Verse 3, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Just like the creatures we see in Revelation 4 who are surrounding the throne, the seraphim here, their anthem is the singular theme of the holiness of God. Look at Revelation 4, 6 to 8, and you'll see that the creatures that are described there are doing the exact same thing, extolling God's holiness. Now, in, um, in Hebrew, one of the ways that you express a superlative, like pure gold, one of the ways that you do that is by repetition. So instead of attaching an adjective to the front, like we do in English, they would say, 
If they want to describe pure gold, they would say gold, gold. That's what it says in the original language. Uh, you see an example of this in 2 Kings 25. If you want to say the land is full of tar pits, as, as, the, um, as uh, Moses records in Genesis 14, you say pits, pits. In other words, it's just full of tar pits everywhere. But here we see the only example in all of the scriptures of a quality or object being raised to the power of three. Right? This is the only example. As R.C. Sproul has famously said in one of his well-known sermons on this text, he says, God is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Which is to say that God's holiness outstrips anything the human mind can comprehend. Anything that we can possibly understand. Basically, we need to make up superlatives to describe the holiness of God. That's the picture. God's holiness here has the idea of two, two aspects. His separateness and his ethical purity. Both of those are in view. God is utterly transcendent. In other words, he is wholly other from us as his creatures, as his creation. God is who he is. But not only that, he is pure. There is no contamination or mixture of sin in God. He is unapproachably holy, holy, holy. And it's that standard that he requires of his creatures to approach him. There's a whole niche market of Christian books written by people who want to say they died and went to heaven and came back. And they always talk about their experience of God like he's a friendly kind of grandfatherly figure or some animated version of like a Renaissance painting or something. But here's the thing. When Isaiah receives his vision of the Lord, it was utterly terrifying. When Ezekiel describes his vision of the Lord in Ezekiel chapter 1, and you've got wheels within wheels and eyes going around and moving when they're not, right? It's terrifying. When the Israelites saw God's presence on Mount Sinai, like we just read in our scripture reading this morning, what happened? It was terrifying. The people cried out like, don't let God talk to us. You, Moses, go talk to him. When John was carried up into heaven in Revelation and he saw the risen Savior, He fell down like a dead man. It was terrifying. The triune God is utterly holy, holy, holy. And when Isaiah is confronted with that vision, look at what he says in verse 4. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The effect of this revelation of God's holiness, it shakes literally the the doorposts, the foundations of the temple. It is so majestic. It is so powerful. It is so consuming that it seems like the whole place is going to crash in on itself. And just the mention of God's holiness is enough to bar Isaiah's entrance into God's presence. That's why he describes the temple filling with smoke. It's to obscure the glory of the Lord and all of his holiness. He is so utterly terrified and so unbelievably overwhelmed with this vision of God's holiness that he cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined. This word ruin speaks of silence that that one carries about as a result of a loss or a death. 
Isaiah realizes as he sees the glory of the Lord that he is at a total loss before an almighty God. And he has no part to sing in this heavenly choir of seraphs extolling the holiness of God. He is a wretched sinner, and he dwells among a nation of wretched sinners. He is not separate. He is not pure. He is only has received a glimpse of the Lord of hosts, and he understands he is under a sentence of death. He is a dead man walking. That's the picture here. And this is what we need to understand about God. This is what we need to preach when we preach God's holiness. God is not the big man upstairs. He is not your buddy. He is not your butler waiting around to fulfill your selfish desires. He is holy, holy, holy. And when he reveals himself, the foundations of the earth tremble and his creatures fall down like dead men at his feet. And the only words they can possibly get out are, woe is me. That is the God of heaven and earth. We need to understand that. And that brings us to the second point in verses 6 and 7, which is Isaiah's cleansing. Isaiah has been confronted by this terrifying vision of God's holiness. Smoke is filling the temple. The foundations are shaken. He has pronounced on himself a sentence of death. And all that remains, all that he can see is fire and an altar. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand. We'll stop right there for a second. All he sees is fire and God's glory obscured in the smoke. The question he has to be thinking, is God going to consume me? In the Old Testament, we said fire is associated with God's holiness, but it's also connected with his consuming judgment. For example, in Genesis 3, when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, what does he do? He posts an angel at the entrance of the garden. It says with what? A flaming sword that moves every which direction. Again, as a, as a demonstration of his judgment. In Numbers chapter 11, as the people grumble and complain, God says in Numbers 11, 1 to 3, God's anger breaks loose in the camp with fiery judgment, and Moses had to intercede. In Deuteronomy 4, in verses 12, in verse 33, and again in verse 36, Moses recalls God's fiery presence before the people at Mount Sinai, where they were terrified. So when you think fire, you think judgment. So when Isaiah sees fire, and he sees God's holiness, and now he sees these burning ones flying around singing a song about holiness, he's got to be a little concerned. But from this fire, he also sees what? An altar. The seraph flies to Isaiah with a coal taken from the altar where presumably a sacrifice has been made. The altar is the place where, by a sentence of death, a substitute atones for God's holiness and his wrath is satisfied. That's the picture. And so this burning coal that's described in verse 6 signifies not destruction, but remarkably God's gracious cleansing and purification. And that is, 
if, if there was any doubt in his mind, verse 7 takes it away. He says, he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. God, through the mouth of this servant, this burning one, says you've been made clean. You who are unholy have been made clean. God's sacrifice has cleansed his lips, yes, the things that he has done that dishonor the Lord, but God's sacrifice has cleansed his inner person. His guilt is removed. His iniquity has been covered. The idea of the end there of forgiven is atoned for, which has the idea of covering over by paying the price of a debt. That's the picture. There has been a, the price has been paid and his sin is covered. How has this taken place? Through atonement. A satisfactory payment has been made in Isaiah, sin, debt. The certificate of debt, as Paul says in Colossians, has been paid, taken away. The Old Testament makes clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Leviticus 17, verse 11, God reiterates that in Hebrews chapter 9. That principle has been upheld here, and the guilty prophet has been purified so that he can become a useful messenger to bring God's word to his people. And that leads into the third point. We see God's, Isaiah's confrontation with the holiness of God, his cleansing. In verses 8 to 13, we see the Lord's commission, Isaiah's commission. The immediate impact of this cleansing is reconciliation. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? And who will go for us? Excuse me. Then I said, Here I am, send me. Now, notice the contrast. Before Isaiah saw the Lord at a distance, now he's hearing the Lord speak plainly. Before, he's so terrified, the only words he could get out of his mouth were, woe is me. And here, he's speaking freely. But before God's blazing holiness earlier, obscured by the smoke, now God has brought him close enough that he can actually hear what God's saying. He has brought him in to send him out. Now, what are we to make of this plural whom shall I send and who will go for us? Why is there a plural? Who, who's he talking about here? Well, God is clearly in consultation. At least that's how the text looks on the plain, plainly. You know, is he talking to the seraphim? Is he asking their input? Is he asking the angels? I don't think that's the case. I don't think there's any example in scripture where God is asking the angels for input on what he should do. But it does sound an awful lot like Genesis 1 where God speaks of himself in the plural as well. And it wasn't, we don't really understand, I think, the fullness of this passage until we come to the New Testament. Because as we come to the New Testament later on, John and Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, we learn that this text, this commission text, is related both to the Lord Jesus and to the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 12, in John chapter 12, verse 41, it speaks of Jesus' glory. Jesus is the one who said this. In Acts 28, Paul attributes this to the Holy Spirit. And so what we see here in Isaiah's commission are the subtle rumblings of God's triune nature. 
The fullness of that is not given to us and explained in all of its richness until we come to the New Testament, but I think we have to see it in that light. And it's worth noting that what had once terrified Isaiah now motivates him to offer himself willingly. God's holiness. His response is very eager and abrupt. It's just, here I am, send me. I'll do it. And this is what God's cleansing work does, doesn't it? It takes us from, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and turns us into, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. He'd been cleansed of his sin by God's gracious, atoning work, and now he was being turned loose to live for and to serve God. And God has a special and a difficult commissioning for him. Verse 9, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So what we see here is God is going to use Isaiah for a unique purpose. His goal is to deafen the ears and blind the eyes. Notice what he says, of this people. They're not my people. It's, there's a level of abstraction here. It's this people. And Isaiah's commission is one of making the deaf deafer. Is that a word? I'm not sure. To make the blind blinder as he goes out and preaches God's word in the midst of the people. God can still offer invitations to repentance, and some may still turn, but as a whole, God's judgment upon them has been sealed up. And even though Isaiah is going to explain God's truth with such simplicity and such clarity that later on in chapter 29, his critics will say he should be teaching children because they're upset with him. With God's sovereign perspective here, Isaiah learns that the people's hearts have passed the point of no return. Their fate is sealed. I think it was Spurgeon who famously said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Isaiah's commission was one of hardening the clay. That was going to be his, his part to play. In verse 11, he says, how long? How long do I have to do this? He answered, until cities are devastated without inhabitant, houses are without people, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are, are many in the midst of the land. The Lord's answer to how long is crystal clear. He says, you're going to preach until the land is laid waste, until you are hauled away into exile. The God who brought them into the land, he wants to make clear to them, he'll take them out of the land. But even though Isaiah's ministry would be one of deafening, of blinding, and of callousing over the people's hearts, there is an element of hope. Look at verse 13. Yet, there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will be again subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Here, Judah's like a, he describes him like a fallen tree, cut off, severed from the root, destined to return to the dust in the ground. But like a tree that's cut down but not dug up, there will be a holy remnant who remain. 
That's the picture. They'll even undergo additional chastening, these people, as they go through this. But through that chastening judgment and their perseverance, new life will burst forth. This verse reminds me of um, years and years ago. I used to work with my dad in the summers, and he had a customer. We, had, uh, we lived in Florida. He had a lawn maintenance company. He had a, one of many hurricanes that came through, and it just wiped out this guy. He had a giant tree in his front yard. And we got to the house that after the storm to clean up, and the tree was literally like split in half right down the middle. So eventually the tree guy came, cut the tree off, ground it up, hauled it away. And then he came back again, and he ground the stump down below grade. And, uh, and that tree was, was gone. Lo and behold, though, a few months later, we roll up on the job, and what do we see? Coming out of that ground, right, where they dug everything up. What shoots coming up? This tree, whatever, I don't even know what kind of tree it was, five or six shoots popping up out of the ground. The stump was even ground down below grade, and yet not enough of the tree was cut down, and through that, new life emerged. It was incredible. And that's the picture that we see here. God is going to grind, he's going to cut them off. He is going to grind them below grade. But he says, listen, there's a portion that will remain. And that faithful portion will carry the promise forward. The holy seed is its stump. In the, in the world of business, testimonials are a powerful tool we can use to uh, increase a business's credibility and... Uh, they, have, they function in a kind of unique and extraordinary way. Um, what are the benefits of a testimonial from a customer? Well, the reality is we're all, hopefully, a little skeptical. <laughs> we don't want to be cynical, but we need to be healthily, a healthy, a healthy skepticism. We don't believe everything we're told, I hope, and we especially don't believe everything we're sold. However, we are much more inclined to believe other people, Right? This is the reason that certain websites that like aggregate customer feedback have gained a lot of traction over the last 15 years. It's why social media is such a, such a thing now and has become such a force to be reckoned with. It's kind of like other members of the tribe try that business out or try that service out or that product out. And um, if they give it two thumbs up, then it kind of reduces your risk. In a similar way, I think... Isaiah 6 functions like a testimonial for this biblical truth, that death does not have the last word. Isaiah is saying, as he describes his confrontation, his cleansing, and his commission, that there is always hope for divine action, even when the odds seem impossibly long. When the king lay dead, Isaiah says, and when I was under the sentence of death, and a sacrifice lay dead upon an altar, and a tree, a tree lay dead upon the ground. When death seemed to reign supreme, and the end seemed all but certain, that was not the case. The death of the king meant the end of an era, but also life remained in the root. He says, when I lay dead under the sentence of condemnation, the seraph brought the fire from the altar and declared my iniquity and sin forgiven. And when a sacrifice lay dead upon the altar, defiled by its, the sin that it bore, that same sacrifice brought life and cleansing to the one whose place it took. What a holy God, and the, 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 the point of chapter 6 
is what a holy God has done for me, Isaiah says, and in me, he can do for you and in you. That's the point. And of course, we on this side of the cross and the resurrection have an even greater testimony that death does not have the last word, don't we? That's why Paul can stand up, like we talked about at the service yesterday in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we stood like a dead man under God's holy law, when the fires of God's judgment seemed poised to consume us in all of our rebellion and wickedness, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, fulfilled all righteousness, and he laid himself down, taking the sting of death upon himself. Ephesians 5 says he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering to God and a sacrifice so that those who come to him by faith might be cleansed and brought near like Isaiah was. What we could not do, God did through his son so that we might have our iniquity taken away and our sin forgiven. And so death does not have the last word for us. And the message of the gospel is this. What Christ has done for me and in me, he can do for you and in you. There is always hope for God to act even when the lights go out. And how he's going to accomplish that through the greater son of David, what that's going to look like at the end of the age, that's what Isaiah is going to explain to us next week in chapter 7 to 12. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious picture. We, we, we see death all around us. We experience its consequences, the, the, the power of sin. And yet we're reminded that even when the lights go out, <laughs> amazingly, they are not out <laughs> because you, Lord, give us the hope. We pray, Lord, that we would look to you and that we would understand that in this calling, this, this, this confrontation, this cleansing, this commission, that there is something here for us to understand as well. Help us to understand your holiness. Help us not to tread lightly on your character. Lord, may we walk worthy. If we are in Christ, may we walk worthy of that holy calling that we might be eager and ready to go out to preach the gospel to uh, and Lord, we are very much like Isaiah in that we, we preach and teach and, and many will just become harder and their eyes will be blinded, their ears will become less able to hear. But that's okay, Lord, um, because your sovereign purposes are being accomplished. Help us to be faithful. Help us to look to you. And most of all, Lord, may, may we place our trust and hope in you no matter what the circumstances. Lord, help us to understand these things. May they grip our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.